individual relationship to God. We also need each other, don't we? We need the church. We need to engage with other Christians, and we need to conduct in our, our, ourselves in a way that honors the Lord in our midst. And when we do so, church, we experience many blessings and benefits as we do so. We grow stronger as we live in community. We also build up others around us as we do so, and we glorify God most of all. That's a pretty good package deal, isn't it? So the community conduct is very important. So please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as we continue our series on this marvelous book. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in 1 Thessalonians. Just remind us where we're at. We're in the second half of the book. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, the author of this book, he turns from theology to application as he often does in his letters. This was a young church, and there were some specific areas that Paul was focusing on for them to grow in. And so in chapter 4 and following, he's addressed things like sexual purity, loving one another. And then he spent a lot of time on the return of Christ, because remember, there was some misunderstandings in the church. They believed that Jesus was returning again, but somehow they misunderstood or didn't get from Paul. He maybe didn't share with them. What would happen to to Christians who died before Jesus returned? There was a fear that they would miss out on the resurrection. So Paul clarified that they would not miss out on anything when Jesus returns. So now as the letter concludes, we're heading down the home stretch. Paul turns to community conduct. And you'll notice as we start going through, he writes in a different style. There are a lot of brief commands that he gives in verses 12 to 22, if you're counting 17 to be exact. Just kind of, boom, firing them off. Now, these commands are not random, but they actually cluster around three areas. And these are the relation between church leaders and members, the relation between members, and then finally, corporate worship. And he's going to focus specifically on prayer and prophecy in that discussion. So in each area, there's going to be a primary principle he's going to give us. All right? So everybody there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, page 988, if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you. So let's look at that first area, the the relation between church leaders and members. And the primary principle is to respect your church leaders. Now, off the top of the bat, I know that some of you are thinking, man, he has been waiting for this passage. You're right. That's the reason I chose this book in the first place. (laughs) Just kidding. It is a little awkward to talk about yourself, but this this is part of church life, right? The relationship between church leaders and members And so we need to see what Paul says about this in verses 12 and 13. So Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over in you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, it's kind of hard to know where there are circumstances that precipitated Paul writing these words about them respecting their leaders. Some have suggested that persecution 
might have stirred resentment toward the leaders. We know that hardship can either pull people together or pull people apart. So it's possible that perhaps as the church was experiencing persecution, some of the members were upset with the leaders for getting them into this mess or not doing enough for getting, getting them out of this mess. Whatever the precise background, Paul commands the church to respect its leaders. Now to clarify, Paul refers to one group of leaders with three functions, not three different groups of leaders. The three functions of the leaders he mentions are they work among you, they are over you, and they admonish you. The first and the third functions I think are pretty self-explanatory, right? The leaders were working among them. They were busy serving the church, praying, counseling, teaching, encouraging, exhorting, and so forth. That was the first function. The third function was to admonish them, which refers to giving instruction, right, and correction if needed. When a leader gives admonishment, it shouldn't be out of a judgmental spirit, but actually out of a spirit of love to see that person grow in greater Christ-likeness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. A leader should admonish the same way a parent admonishes their child in the sense of the best for them, their love for them. Now, the second function should be discussed a little bit more. The leaders are over them. God has granted leaders authority to guide the church. Leaders are not better Christians than members per se, but that God in every area of life ordains leadership, and the church is no exception. Now you might say, well, why does Paul focus on the response of the members rather than focusing on the leaders? Well, actually, he does focus on leaders and other of his writings. But in this particular case, the issue wasn't really at hand. It was more on the members' response to the leaders. So this is what Paul addresses. And he says that they were to respect their leaders. Moreover, as he says in our passage, they should esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Members should value and love their leaders. Why, you ask? Well, he says, because of their work. Now, notice that Paul does not say because of their personality or their education or their charisma or their status or their accomplishments. Members that esteem their leaders for those reasons actually are setting up their leaders for a fall. Because what it does when you constantly hear those things, it stokes your pride because leaders are like everybody else. And when you hear things like that, it stokes their pride. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to, you know, to give some compliments or encouragement in that way. But I think the primary focus of the esteem of the people to their leaders should be on their work how they're encouraging them to grow in Christ-likeness, how they're advancing the kingdom. So in other words, I wouldn't focus so much on giving compliments, oh, they're so funny, oh, they tell the best stories, oh, they're so smart. Rather, your prayers have made a difference in my life. You have set an example that is leading me along. I appreciate how you help me to understand the scriptures better. Do you see the difference? Focus on how they are 
being faithful to their calling and helping to strengthen you as you walk in greater Christ-likeness. And I just want to say thank you because our church does a very nice job of honoring and esteeming the leaders. So from the bottom of my heart, I do want to just say thank you. It means a lot. And, you know, Paul says that he wants peace among the leaders and the church. And I think that is a huge reason why there is a nice peace in our church is because of the way you respect your leaders. So thank you. Now, before moving on and getting teary-eyed, sometimes people claim, I want to just address something really quick here, that there's really not supposed to be leadership in the church. Christ is the head of the church, and we're all equal, so we don't, we don't need leaders. And leadership was actually a later development that came about as people started getting power hungry in the church. Ever heard that before? Here's what I would say to that. Absolutely, Christ is the head of the church. No man is the head of the church. But God designed the church to have leaders, Jesus appointed apostles to establish the church. And once the apostles fanned out and started and began churches, it was their first order of business to appoint leaders in Acts 14.23 on Paul's first missionary journey. It says he appointed elders in every church. Not just one leader, but multiple leaders. 1 Thessalonians, the book we're reading, and James, probably the first two books of the New Testament that were written, speaks of leaders in the church from the very beginning, it was God's practice and design to have leaders in the church. So I think that claim that the early church didn't have leaders is patently false because leaders are not bad. Therefore, the church is good if they're faithful in their conduct. And this is a footnote. It is a privilege to be entrusted with authority, but it is also a great burden. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Who do they give an account to? The church? No, to God. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So Hebrews 13 echoes those sentiments about respecting your leaders, but it adds that we must give an account. Any worthy leader should daily feel the burden of what it means to have an authority given by God. Never take that lightly and never want leaders in your church who don't take that, take that lightly, okay? Right? So now Paul shifts his attention. The second area is the relation between members. And the principle is this, mutually strengthen one another. In verse 14, Paul says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now, I just want to point out, notice that he says the word brothers there. If you've been keeping track, that's actually the 13th time Paul has said this word brothers in this short letter. And the word brothers is best understood in a generic fashion to include men and women, brothers and sisters, just like how we understand that with the word mankind, right? It includes men and women. And Paul uses this family language quite a bit in Thessalonians. He has spoken of mothers, he's spoken of fathers, and now he speaks again of brothers. He uses this family imagery quite often in the book of Thessalonians. You might say, why does he do that? He does it, I believe, because this church was experiencing persecution as people turned to Christ 
They might experience alienation and separation from their society and even their own families. They needed a new family sometimes. Spiritual brothers and sisters. And I just want to encourage us. We should think of the folks here in this room as our family. Not a club that we visit once a week, but as a family that we share deep and eternal bonds with. Amen? That is the view of the church. Now, to carry out this principle of mutually strengthening one another, Paul gives several commands for all believers to live out. This isn't just for the leaders. This is for all of us to carry out. And these commands focus on different situations where members struggle, where members struggle. And the first thing he pointed out is that we're to admonish the idol. We're admonishing the idol. Now, that Greek word for idol covers a sense of both laziness and rebellion. There were some in the church who were lazy and relied on others to provide for them when they were capable themselves of working. Paul instructed them about this when he was there months beforehand starting the church. And now he brings it up again. He mentioned it back in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, when he said, to work with your hands as we instructed you so that we, you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So this was a real problem in the church there. These idlers who were lazy but also rebellious because they were not listening to what Paul was saying. And he's actually going to bring it up again in chapter, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians. Still wasn't sinking in. We'll talk more about it then in 2 Thessalonians. But just wanted to cover there what Paul says, that we're to admonish the idol. Second, we are to encourage the faint-hearted. Again, we're not told the specifics about what was going on in the church, but based on what we've read so far, it's easy to see some scenarios. There were people in the church who were faint-hearted. Perhaps some were faint-hearted because they misunderstood the return of Christ and they were discouraged because they'd seen loved ones pass away and they thought they would never see him again in the resurrection. Or they were worried that they might die themselves and not be part of the resurrection. Or perhaps the persecution was causing some of them to grow faint-hearted and discouraged, right? Now, in such a situation, it can be tempting when we're around faint-hearted Christians to just simply say, the Bible says this, go do it, right? Suck it up, buttercup, as we like to say nowadays, right? <laughs> Suck it up. This is what the Bible says. What's wrong with you? Go live this out. Certainly, we've seen that Paul is not one who is a pushover, is he? He, he advocates tough love. He just said to admonish the idol. But don't we need both sides sometimes in the Christian life? There's also a place for encouragement because anyone can grow faint-hearted no matter how strong you are. You can be broken down. Satan is constantly trying to destroy you. And God allows you to be tested, not to destroy you, but to build you up. But those tests are tough, aren't they? They can be very tough. And it's interesting, that Greek word for faint-hearted literally means small of soul. 
in the sense of just your soul kind of just shrinks up as you get withered over time through these trials. Ever feel like that might happen? During those trials, a word of encouragement is like a cup of water to a soul that is deeply parched. I've kept encouraging emails over the years, and it's good to read them. Don't you need a reminder sometimes that you're actually making a difference? Don't you need a reminder or perhaps someone to give you a little more perspective about how God might be working in your life and you don't see it? To hang in there? Or to point out how you've been used in the past and be encouraged God will use you again in the future? Friend, are there people in our church that you can encourage with a card, an email, a text, or a phone call. Maybe they're going through persecution from their friends or their family because of their faith. Or maybe they're going through a difficult trial or a dry time spiritually where it seems like God is not answering their prayers. Let me ask you to ask God and pray this week. Is there someone that he puts on your heart to write and encourage to be that spiritual cup of water, to encourage, encourage the faint-hearted. We need to do this, don't we, church? Third, we also are to help the weak. That Greek word translated help is a very strong word. It it conveys a, a strong attachment to someone or something, cling to, hold fast to, be devoted. In other words, it's not just helping. It's possible to help other people and not really get attached, right? You can just make a quick phone call. You can write a little a check and put something, you know, to help somebody, a little bit of money. But this is more than that. It's in a strong attachment to want to help those who are weak. Paul doesn't specify what he means by weakness. It could refer to spiritual weakness or to physical weakness. He might have left it ambiguous on purpose. If I had to guess, I would say physical weakness because he just talked about the faint heart, which kind of speaks of a spiritual weakness there. But I think he might be referring to physical weakness, right? Those who were sick, who have some infirmity, we are to be devoted to them to help them in their time of need. You say, well, how do we do so? Make that phone call. Visit them. Make a meal. As a church, friends, let us be devoted to the weak. Then as a summary, Paul says that we are to be patient with them all. We're to be patient with struggling Christians. Again, Paul's not making excuses. Paul is relentless and saying, keep pressing on. You're to become like Christ, right? He's not saying, oh, if you're a struggling Christian, it doesn't matter. You can't keep pressing on. No, Paul keeps putting that vision out before us. But he tells us to be patient with those around us who are struggling, You say, why is that? Why should we be patient? Well, I would start off by saying, God is patient with us. In the Old Testament, it's commonly said that God is, quote, slow to anger over and over again. God was patient with the nation of Israel for 1,500 years despite constant idolatry and rebellion. And God continues to be patient. He hasn't changed. 
2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I am continually amazed how patient God is with me and with others. And that leads to a second reason we should be patient. We all have our struggles. We should be patient with those who are struggling because we all have struggled or we are struggling or we will struggle. Our struggles may not be a scandalous sin, but none of us are even close to being sinless like Christ. Anybody close in here? If you are, you're lying. <laughs> the famous British pastor Charles Spurgeon said, listen to this, I love this quote. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him. For you are worse than he thinks you to be. true, isn't it? And our struggles can go on for years. Years. There's a Christian uh, group that used to be in existence called Cademan's Call. They wrote a song called Thankful that begins this way. I ran across an old box of letters while I was bagging up some clothes for goodwill. You know, I had to laugh that the same old struggles that plagued me then are plaguing me still. Ouch. But take heart. The Apostle Paul was certainly one of the godliest followers of Christ ever. But he was the first to declare he was striving for greater godliness. I love his words in Philippians 3, 12 to 14. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, all of us are deeply broken, and we will never attain perfection in this lifetime. But unfortunately, if we're honest, sometimes we are quick to blast each other instead of being patient. We forget what, a what God has done in a person's life and we focus on what is lacking, right? And you know what? As I thought about it this week, when we are impatient with others who are struggling, it actually reveals things in our own hearts. Impatience shows our pride as we think we're better than that other person. I don't struggle with that. I would have overcome that a long time ago. What's wrong with you? I would do better than you. Or our impatience shows a lack of love. In other words, I would rather do the things that I want to do than waste my precious time dealing with your struggles. But Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient. Love is patient. Verse 15, Paul concludes, See that no one repays you, pays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. The human friends, the human desire for vengeance is very strong, isn't it? 
when someone wrongs you, says something against you, or does something to you. But Scripture forbids that desire for vengeance. Obviously, we're not to act out on those desires in terms of physical harm, but we should also refrain from other forms of vengeance, like speaking negatively about others, a.k.a. gossip, right? We should, all, we should also refrain from holding grudges or avoiding people to kind of show them our scorn. Instead, what does he say that we're to, we're always to seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Did you guys hear those words? We're not just to refrain, right? Refrain from not doing anything harmful. We are to actively seek to do good to those around us. There are no exceptions. You're to seek to do good to one another, speaking of Christians. So that means, okay, do good to the godly Christians. That's pretty easy, right? But he also says all Christians. Paul has already spoken about in this letter those who are struggling with sexual immorality, those who are lazy and rebellious. Do good always to them. And he says do good to everyone. That means non-Christians, even those who may not like you, those who say things about you, those who persecute you, like these Thessalonian Christians were experiencing. We are to greet them warmly. We are to show tangible expressions of kindness. Now, Paul isn't just some radical in the church. He's simply following what Jesus told us to do, right? Matthew 5, 44 and 4 through 48, Jesus uttered these absolutely revolutionary words. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do, even, do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Apostle Peter, Peter echoes this too. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. God actually expects us to live this way. We're not to seek vengeance. And if you have been hurt to the point you're, where you need to speak to that person, you don't gossip it around and blast them on social media and stuff first. No, you go to them privately and you seek to restore that relationship. So friends, if you, if you haven't realized it by now, it's actually pretty hard to be a Christian, isn't it? This is challenging and it's part of the way that we are to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. We are to die to the old sinful ways that come naturally. It is natural to want to seek vengeance instead of loving others. But as disciples of Jesus, we're to obey his commands. And when we live this way, people in the world will stand up and take notice because they know that it is nothing less than supernatural to see this. Only God could change a person to live that way, to live that way and they will want to know more about this great God. Amen? That's what we're supposed to do. Let us pray.
Lord, we thank you for these very rich, practical truths of how you want us to live as individuals and as a church. Lord, these are very challenging words for us to hear and to heed. And God, I pray for myself and for all of us, for your grace to live them out. This is not willpower. This is grace that we need. So we ask that you would give that to us in great abundance. Lord, we pray for our church. We pray just for a continued and ongoing and growing respect for the leaders of the church. Lord, we pray that you would use us, all of us, to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, and to help the weak. We pray, God, that we would be patient with all of us, as you are so patient with us. And Lord, I just pray if there's someone here today who hears these words and says in their heart that they know they don't have any power to do this, any real desire, but there is something in them that wants this, Lord, they would realize at first what they need is a relationship with you, to have a new heart, to realize that you died on the cross for their sins so that they might be made new and be given a new heart. And then, and only then, to go live that out in our world. May today be the day of salvation for someone as they realize that they have sinned before you, but yet you have forgiven because of Christ. And they would claim that forgiveness by believing in Jesus this morning. Father, we thank you and we praise you for this time in your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.